a good place to start off is 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4 in the Old Testament. Uh, and while you're turning there, I want to thank y'all for the invitation to be here. It's been many years since I've been here. Uh, good to see uh, familiar faces and good to see some that are not familiar. But we love you for Christ's sake and hope that the Lord will bless us to have a fruitful and God-honoring time while I'm with you. 2 Kings chapter 4, we see as episode in the life of the prophet Elisha. Now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead, and thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord. And the creditor is come to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. As was very common, such as that time. You know, they would, they would become bondmen and work until the time that the debt was uh, satisfied. Verse 2, And Elisha said unto her, What shall I do for thee? Tell me. What hast thou in the house? What's he asking her here? He's asking her, what do you already have? What do you already possess? Now, Elisha had great power, invested him of the Lord. Uh, Elisha was a feared prophet, revered, but also he was a feared prophet. I believe there are many ways he could have helped this woman who was greatly in need. This woman had a judgment hanging over her head, and she was filled with dread and filled with fear. And he asked her, what hast thou in the house? In other words, what do you already possess? What do you already have? And she said, thine handmaid hath not anything in the house save a pot of oil. And he said, go, borrow thee vessels abroad of all thy neighbors, even empty vessels. Borrow not a few. And when thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee and upon thy sons and shalt pour out into all those vessels, and thou shalt set aside that which is full. So she went from him, shut the door upon her and upon her sons, who brought the vessels to her, and she poured out. And it came to pass, when the vessels were full, that she said unto her son, Bring me yet a vessel. And he said unto her, There is not a vessel more. And the oil stayed. So there was just enough oil to fill up everything that was necessary to be filled. And she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil, pay thy debt, and live thou and thy children of the rest. Now, truly, this is a great and miraculous thing that took place. But I believe there's some significance in this, a spiritual realization. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, I was, grew up hearing men say, It's wrong to over-spiritualize something. And that's true. You can over-spiritualize something. But also, God's children in this day and age have been guilty of under-spiritualizing things. They want to see everything as just some, some kind of straightforward moral lesson. But brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ in John chapter 5 verse 39 says, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. They are they that testify of me. Okay, So we see great, wonderful pictures of Jesus Christ and his kingdom and his work and what he's bestowed upon us all enfolded in the Old Testament. And one of our great tasks as pastor teachers is to unfold them for you in such a way that you can see Jesus in them. Now, how do we see the blessings that we have in Jesus Christ in this? Well, this woman had a debt hanging over her head and she was afraid. She was full of fear. But notice he didn't tell her to go out and take something, do this. Now somebody would say, Brother Joe, he went, she went and borrowed vessels. That's right, but there was no contents in those vessels. Those vessels were just simply frameworks that were about to get filled with something. Now what were they filled with? And somebody may say, Brother Joe, she didn't have all that oil before. I posit for you she did have that oil before. 
The Lord had already blessed her to have that oil. That oil was in her house. I think God just allowed the prophet Elisha in this blessing to make that which she had just grow larger and larger and larger. Now what, that, what lesson can we get from this? Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you, what have you in your house? There's a lot of fear to be had in this day and age. There are judgments that hang over a sinner's head. You know, when we walk around in this life, when we get all wrapped up in the world and we look at ourselves and we see our own sins, and I'm going to tell you, unless you've been born again in the Spirit of God, you don't have a struggle within you with sin. Unless you're born again in the Spirit of God, sin is just your way of life, and you can find satisfaction in that. But for someone who's having a Romans chapter 7 experience, a wrestling match of good against evil that dwells within each and every one of us who's been born again in the Spirit of God... You have that wrestling match and you have, feel like when you look at your sins and your sinfulness that you have this great judgment hanging over your head. That's one experience that is common to all born-again, regenerated people. When the commandment of God comes from the stone tablets, when God takes it and through the medium of His Holy Spirit imprints it upon your soul and spirit, in Romans chapter 7 it says the commandment came... In other words, Paul always knew what the commandment, the law was. But there came a time when God took it from the stone tablets and put it inside of him. And when he said the commandment came, sin revived and I died. What's he saying there? He's saying when the commandment that I used to just see as a weapon, something that I could beat people over the head with, that I could feel proud about, Look at how well I'm keeping this thing. Look, look at you. How great a sinner that you are. I can tell you, all of us, before we're born again in the Spirit of God, have that self-aggrandizing attitude. We cannot be wrong. We're going to justify ourselves. And we don't see ourselves as being in any trouble. But when, my friends, the Spirit of Jesus Christ and God's own sovereign working takes that substance of morality and righteousness which is upon the stone tablets and through the medium of the new birth and the Holy Spirit places it and prints it on your heart. Sin revives. Now look, sin always has been. We were born sinners. We'll die being sinners. What does it mean, sin revived? It means for the first time in Paul's life, he realized, I am truly a sinner. You know, there's a big difference in saying you're a sinner and feeling that you're a sinner. Paul, for the first time, he said, when the commandment came in my heart, sin revived and I died. That means I saw myself worthy of death. I had a judgment hanging over my head. Well, brothers and sisters, what's the answer? The answer and the relief that we need in this world can basically be summed up by this wonderful question that Elisha asked this poor woman that day. What hast thou in thy house? What do you already have, child of grace? What do I mean by that? If you're struggling with sin and you feel like that there is a just judgment hanging above your head that unless something is done for you, hell will swallow you up and rightfully so. Brothers and sisters, I've got the good news for you. God has already put within your hearts what you need to be freed from that looming judgment that hangs over your head. Brothers and sisters, faith does not pay your debt. Oh, true, this, this oil increased, and it increased, and it increased. It was sufficient to pay this material debt that this woman had. But brothers and sisters, what does faith do for us? What does a belief in Jesus Christ do for us? It doesn't pay our debt, but it relieves us from the fear and the dread 
of seeing a just debt hanging over our head that unless something is done, it will rightfully crush us forevermore. Jesus paid that debt. And the only reason you know that you're a sinner and the only reason you can believe that you need a Savior is because Jesus is already dwelling in your house. What do we need to do? We, my friends, need to have enough faith to exercise that which the Lord has given us and believe that the Lord can make it bigger. I, I can tell y'all, when my wife and I first got together, uh, my vessels, I had vessels that were full of political angst. I mean, I'm, I'm a conservative Republican. I, you know, and I'm not saying that. Any of you are liberal Democrats, I love you. We can agree to disagree on that. That don't mean nothing, okay? That don't mean anything. But I'm a conservative Republican, and it tore my nerves up when I saw this and when I saw that, and I'd go to C-SPAN, and finally my wife came to me one day, and she said, I'm turning it off. You're not allowed to turn it back on. And somebody may say, you've got a very brassy wife. Yes, I do, and I'm afraid of her. I love her, but I'm a little scared of her. She's from Louisiana. She, she cut me to my backbone if I don't watch it. I didn't watch any more of it. And you know what happened? I learned to say, you know what? I can't control She's right. I can't control it. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pour that vessel out. I'm going to pour that political anxiety out. And what do you replace it with? God's already given you what you can replace it with. It's just an enduring trust in Jesus Christ. Amen. If he's able to pay your sin debt, and he is, if he saved you, he'll never leave you and he'll never forsake you. Brothers and sisters, empty out the political anxiety. Empty out the inordinate lust. Empty out all the doubts and the fears. Empty out that vessel we've got that all the people on TV and all the advocates of macroevolution, now there is such a thing as evolution. It's called adaptivity, adapting within a species. But there's no evidence of macroevolution. That means from a creature jumping from one species to another species, from one kind to another kind. We can observe microevolution. We don't deny microevolution, but we do deny macroevolution because people have taken that and they're trying to destroy your confidence in a creator God. And brothers and sisters, you need to empty that vessel out and the Lord will fill it with faith. He'll fill it with what you already have. Oh, brothers and sisters, and how sweet it is when we realize what it is that we have. And that's what faith does for you. Faith reveals unto you what you already possess. Let's go to a couple places. Go with me to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, a very profound chapter that addresses faith. I want you to look at some of the wording here. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? Have you ever noticed that, as pertaining to the flesh? You know, when you first read that, when I first read that, I said, well, you know, obviously he's talking to other Jews. It means that they're of the fleshly, carnal, you know, earthly lineage of Abraham. But history tells us very plainly that by the time this epistle was written by Paul to the Roman church, Roman persecutions, the Romans had persecuted the church so greatly, the Jews so greatly, that basically Rome was void of Jewish presence during this time. They had been forced to leave. Uh, the Roman church was a primarily great majority of what? Gentile believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'll tell you what. I'm a spiritual Jew, 
but I'm not a physical Jew. I am a Jew circumcised in the heart by the Spirit of God. I'm the Jew spoken of in Romans chapter 2, whose circumcision is not of that which is outward of the flesh, but whose circumcision is of the heart and whose confidence is of God, uh, not in the letter that killeth, but in, in the grace of the Lord. I'm that kind of Jew. But I do not have the genetics of a Hebrew. I don't. But here he says he's addressing a primarily Gentile church, saying, What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh, hath found. I think what he's saying, what did Abraham find? But what he found has its application not in the obtaining of heaven, but something you enjoy while you dwell in your vessels down here. What is it that while we walk in these bodies, oh true, one of these days these bodies are going to be glorified and changed and they're going to live in heaven one day. Do I believe it's going to be this body? Amen. This body's going to be changed. It's not going to be exchanged. It's going to be changed. It is going to be this body, but it's going to be made completely different. It's going to be fashioned after the likeness of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I can't describe all that to you, but the Word of God makes very plain. It is this body. And I believe this body is going to have a terrestrial in which I walk, a place where I can walk and talk and run and sing I'd actually love to be able to run again. If you saw me run right now, you'd have to come pick me up. Okay, why? Because this world takes its toll on me. But brothers and sisters, one day I'll have a place there. But while I'm here in this flesh, what is it that we can have and enjoy that Abraham found? Here's going to talk about Abraham's faith, his trusting in God. Was Abraham, was it pertaining to everlasting life? When he believed in God. Here he said this is something that Abraham experienced pertaining to his flesh. While he walked. While he talked. Here in this world. What shall we say then that Abraham our father is pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified. That means declared just. By works. He hath whereof to glory. But not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God. And it was counted unto him for righteousness. What it does not say is Abraham believed God and it was counted unto God for Abraham's righteousness. There's a big difference there. Abraham believed God and it was counted. That's from the Greek word logisiomahi. You're going to see counted, reckoned, imputed in this passage of scripture. And they all come from that same Greek term. It's an accounting term. And my friends, it means to impute, to reckon, to count, in other words, it means to take an inventory of. To take an account of. To take an inventory of. You don't have to take my word for it. You can go to the Thayers, you can go to the Strongs, and you'll see what I'm telling you is true. Logisio Mahi. So here he says, If Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof the glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted. It was imputed. It was reckoned. It was counted. In other words... An inventory was made. Okay? Unto him for righteousness. In other words, Abraham, way back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, he had to let the last knot out of his rope. He had already, God had shown him, Eleazar will not be your heir. Well, God, here I'm an old man. This is an old woman. How in the world is this going to happen? I guess what? I'll just have to trust in you. I'll have to empty out my doubt vessel. And Lord, you can fill it with something. And he said, come, Abraham, look at the stars. 
Count the stars. Can you tell the stars? He said, thy children will be like the stars of the heaven. You know the naked eye can only count about 3,000. I believe the word of God tells us very plainly it expresses the stars of the heaven not as a number as finite and as countable as 3,000. Even a Mississippi boy like me without taking my shoes and socks off can count to 3,000. But my friends, the word of God knows that there are billions and trillions of stars out there and we can only see about 3,000 of them with the naked eye. Do you see how totally correct the word of God always is? I mean, if God said 3,000 people, whoo, aren't you impressed? No, God said all those stars. And in whatever respect, Abraham trusted and believed God. Said, you know what? If this is going to happen, if I'm going to have fruit of our own loins, if I'm going to have a vast family, okay, God, you're going to have to do it. You know what? God was the only way it could have ever gotten done anyway. God had already intended to do it. God had already promised him he was going to do it. So therefore, Abraham trusted at this point, this episode in his life. Was this the only time he trusted in God? No, but it was, my friends, a great time when he did trust in God and he got an experience. Something was revealed to him that he possessed. He possessed the covenant promise and love and power of the Jehovah God being his friend. You know, um, let me see if I can find... Uh, the passage of scripture I, I'm looking for. Let me go over to James just a moment. And I think it's a book, book of James chapter 2, if I'm thinking correctly. Notice what it said. Here in this passage of scripture, talking about being justified by works. Now again, being justified means to be declared just. Now you can be declared just before God in heaven at the bar of divine justice. It's that by which we're going to go to heaven. But I thank God that we can also be declared just in our minds and hearts while we live here in this life. Amen? What hath Abraham as pertaining to the flesh hath found? What has Danny found? What has Laura found? What have you found? Coming to the word of God, hearing the preaching of the gospel, trusting that there is God in spite of all this world saying there is no such thing as this God. We know this God is real and we trust in him. What have you found as pertaining to the flesh? You believe that the very God that spoke this world into existence is for you. You belong to him. He is yours and you are his. Notice in James chapter 2 verse 23. Here talking about what Abraham did and trusting and believing God. Abraham, um, James chapter 2 verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, again, straight from Genesis chapter 15 verse 6. All right. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. Who was it imputed to? God or to Abraham? Where was the inventory taken, my friends? It was taken in Abraham. It's a declaration of what he possessed, what he already had in his heart, what he already had in the covenant promise of God unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. What is a faith to us? It is a declaration of God telling you, you already belong to me. I'm in your heart. Over in Romans chapter 10, how nigh does it say the word which we preach? How close is that word in you? He said it's in your mouth and in your heart. So when I preach the gospel today, and you believe it and it strikes a chord in your heart, 
What does it show you? Does it show you you have the potential to become a child of God? Or does it reveal to you that you already belong to him? It reveals to you that you already belong to him. That all of the righteousness of God has been imputed already to your case. Now, Abraham had this great blessing even before Jesus Christ was born in this world in a manger. Even before he hung upon the tree of the cross. Even before he shed the blood. Even before he was resurrected. But I can tell you in the covenant declaration of God, it was as good as done. You see, as good as done. Now, faith is a declaration. Through that episode, Abraham felt a great feeling. He had a great knowledge. At that day, he said, you know what? God is my friend. I'd hate to have him as an enemy. Amen? God is my friend. He was called a declaration, a publishing, an affirmation. You're my friend. You're my friend. Okay? Back to Romans chapter 4. It was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is a reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. Side note, Jesus called belief a work. In John chapter 6, they came to him and said, What works can we work that we may work the works of God? That's a lot of works. It wasn't exactly worded that way, but you could tell from the context that's what they meant. What can we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus said, This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. Okay? Now, somebody may say, Oh, he was just saying there that if you believe, it's because God worked it in you. That's true. God works in you, gives you faith to be able to believe. But brothers and sisters, that wasn't the context of what was being asked. I believe Jesus was not trying to tie him up in knots. He was answering the question. You want to work the works of God while you leave here? Believe in him. If you believe in that God, you're going to be a good neighbor. If you believe in that God, you're going to be a good employee. If you believe in that God, you're going to be a good student, a good mama, a good daddy. You're going to be a good son. You're going to be a good citizen. If you believe in that God and it's work. Jesus said it was work. But what does it mean here? But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him. The context is those who are depending upon the Mosaic law. In this context, he's not saying that, that believing in God is not a work. He's saying that using the law to try to justify yourself, that embodiment of works to try to justify yourself, that is wrong. He's, what he said, let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. God giving you faith is a complete grace. You're exercising that faith is a work that you do, okay? Hence the term exercising your faith. For it is God which worketh in you both to will, but he doesn't work in you both the will and the doing. He works in you both to will and to do. We choose to do. That's a work. That's a labor. That's a choice. That's something that we do. But the giving of that faith was imparted when we were born again the Spirit of God and it's fully of grace. We couldn't have asked for it. We couldn't deserve it. It was given us. Our exercise of it from now on, that is, my friends, it is a synergistic salvation. Him giving it was monergistic. We were nothing but the passive recipients of it. But now when I exercise faith, my friends, I'm taking what God gave me and I'm choosing to pour out all that bad stuff and to feel the increase that he gives me in faith. Now, he says here, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even, how, how much of a grace is God giving you faith? How much grace is involved? I mean, I mean, do you deserve faith? 
Do y'all deserve it? This world's so messed up. They tend to think, oh, yeah, well, you just live good enough. You deserve faith. Anybody can have faith. They think, you know, even the devil has faith. And you have faith. You have faith. We all have faith. The word of God says all men have not faith. I believe the word of God. How much, of a, how much grace does it take for you to be bestowed faith through the medium of the Holy Spirit? It's all grace. But, brothers and sisters, that grace requires some sanctification, some choice, and some work to exercise it. Your exercising it didn't make you have it. Your exercising it couldn't have caused you to obtain it. How can you exercise something you haven't obtained yet? God's grace gave you the faith. Now, brothers and sisters, we can exercise in it. But how much grace was involved? I mean, and you... Giving him giving you faith. Notice he said, even in like manner, even as David describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something couple of points we want to make from this, God being our helper. When it says you were counted, reckoned, and imputed, that logisio mahi, it says to take an inventory of. Let me ask y'all something. If somebody came to you and said, I own this food truck sitting over here, and I want to do an inventory of this food truck, okay, I'll help you. What do I need to do? What is an inventory? An inventory is a statement, an estimate, a declaration of what is possessed already. You don't do an inventory of the Sears wish book or the, you know, the JCPenney wish book. Those are wishes. No, you do an inventory of what? What is already possessed. If I was going to tell you I want to do an inventory of this food truck out here and you say, sure, I'll help you. I will help you calculate up an expression showing what you already own. And I told you, okay, go down to Target. I don't even know if y'all have one here. Go down to Target and start counting what they've got. Wait a minute. You don't own what's down at Target. You see the problem? When I used to help my uncle at the hardware store, he'd say, Sean, I want you to come over here and help me do inventory. And I'd go and help him do inventory. But you know, he never sent me to Walmart to count anything. He sent me into his own store with his own stock. And he told me to count what he already possessed. And when it was done, the accountant took it and compiled it as a statement, a concise statement. Now, the numbers on that page, there was not one screw. There was not one washer. There was not one piece of PVC or CPVC. There was not a spring. There was not a penny nail. None of that was in that expression. But the expression, the inventory, my friends, was a statement of what he already had in the store. And people think, well... Your faith obtains heaven for you, obtains the righteousness of Christ for you. No, it reveals the righteousness of Christ that you already possess. It's an inventory. It's a statement. She already had the oil in the house. God just made it bigger and relieved the burden that was hanging over her head. Brothers and sisters, if you're a believer today in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you need to empty out your guilt. You need to empty out your burdens. You need to empty out your fear of hell and be satisfied that you already have in the house what you need to be relieved from your burden. Because, brothers and sisters, if you have faith in Christ, it is imputed, reckoned, counted 
unto you for righteousness. God is showing you an expression of all of his righteousness that you already possess. You already possess it. Now, another thing I want to look at real quick. You know, us believing the gospel. Us believing the gospel. Now notice here when he said, even as David... Verses 6 through 8 here, he's talking about the work that God made in covenant bond before the world began that he would impute the very full righteousness of his son unto all of his elect. Perfect without fail. And that's what Jesus said he came to do. John chapter 6, around verse 39, Jesus said, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that all he hath given me, I should what? Lose nothing, but raise it up again at the last day. Okay? That was, why is it that Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world? Because the merits of his blood were already determined upon every name on the Lamb's book of life. There's no way one could slip through the cracks. There's no way one could fall from salvation. Jesus had determined to come and be their daysman, to be their atonement. So therefore, everyone that he came for, why is it Romans chapter 8, for whom he did foreknow, them he also did predestinate, to be conformed to the image of his son, he might be the firstborn born of many brethren. Then he went on to say who he foreknew, who he predestinated. Then he also called, then he justified, then he glorified. Why is it the very same number he began with is the very same number he ended with? Because God, my friends, has imputed to the elect all of the merits of his son. And he determined that before the world began. And nothing can frustrate it. Nothing has to be added to it. Jesus came in his impeccable manner and did exactly what the Father would have him to do. The Spirit is unfailing in applying that in the new birth to every child of God. I thank God it's not by fat chicken eating preachers. I thank God it's by the Holy Spirit of God who is able to reach into the womb before the abortionist can kill the baby. Who can reach into the funeral home, I mean into the nursing home. Yeah, that spirit, if it wanted to, he could even reach in the funeral home. But God don't tend to do that. Even into the nursing home and can touch the heart of one who is mentally handicapped and can't even process the gospel. That spirit can touch that heart. Brothers and sisters, that spirit touched the hearts in the Old Testament. And that spirit touches every heart that is an elect child of God. And those merits will be applied so is it, we said, the wind bloweth where it listeth. That's what he told Nicodemus. He said, the wind bloweth where it listeth. Thou hearest the sound thereof, but knoweth not whence it cometh, neither whether it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit of God. Now, who's every one that's born of the Spirit of God? He said, without that Spirit of God, you can't see or enter into the kingdom of heaven. In other words, everybody who's ever going to be in heaven is all born again the same way. That's God imputing that to the elect. To us. But wait a minute. But wait a minute. This is talking about something that's imputed to us when we believe. Okay? This is something that's an individual thing. Brothers and sisters, I could be long preaching, teaching you how there's no way you could believe in Jesus Christ unless you've been born of the Spirit of Christ. I mean, I can just tell you one verse. Okay, 1 Corinthians 2, 14. For the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he, for they are spiritually discerned. How much more spiritual can you be than believing Jesus Christ? 
How much more spiritual could you be than trusting that Jesus is the only Savior of sinners, that he's your Savior? That's the most spiritual thing I know you can do. And the Word of God tells me implicitly, explicitly, that without the Spirit of God already being in you, it's nothing but foolishness to you. Is Jesus foolishness to y'all tonight? No, he's not. He's my Savior. And why do I know that? Because the Spirit quickened me, made me alive, gave me the spirit of adoption whereby I cry, Abba, Father. That's just one verse. I, mean, I could wear y'all out with them, and I know Brother Dolph could too, but we ain't going to do that. I want to look. He imputed it to us. Jesus fulfilled it. Let me ask you something, brothers and sisters. Uh, isn't it wonderful when something that's been done legally gets revealed to your mind and eyes? I want to look at a couple of examples real quick. I looked these up on the internet with this in my mind. And I've got, I've got to hurry up and bring this to a close. Um, in uh, Portugal, I'm going to read this. I copied this straight off. Luis Carlos de Norona Cabral da Camara. Oh, my goodness. Joe Nettles. Doesn't sound nearly as good next to that name, right? Luis Carlos de Norona Cabral de Camara. Camara boasted of his noble Portuguese lineage. So he was a Portuguese nobleman, a wealthy person, but was not a happy man. This is a true story, but was not a happy man. As the illegitimate and unloved son of an aristocratic woman, he was rich, but he had few friends, no offspring of his own. So when it came to writing out his will, okay, almost 20 years before he died, okay, now this is way before he died. This is something he legally determined to do 20 years before he died. So when it came to writing out his will almost 20 years ago, he asked a Portuguese notary for a copy of the Lisbon phone book. And at random, he went through that phone book, plucking names out of it, of people to leave his wealth to. Man, bless him. I just flipping and pointing, flipping and pointing. Wouldn't it be great? You know, I'll never win the lottery because I don't ever buy a ticket. But if any of y'all ever buy me a ticket and I win that thing, I'm going to have a good time giving all that money away. I mean, I'm going to have a good time giving all that money away. Now, I am going to take money to Europe, but the rest of it, man, we're going to try to do the best we can with, okay? Here, he's just flipping and pointing, flipping and pointing. Plucked out those names at random. Now, with the unhappy Luis Carlos having drunk himself into the grave 20 years later, he drank himself into a grave. His randomly chosen heirs are receiving lawyer's letters telling them they can claim a share of his fortune. What are we saying here? Legally, when he made that will, he had already chosen those names. 20 years before he died, it was set in stone. He was the only one who could have changed it. It was legal. So at the time of his passing, the death of the testator, that judgment went completely legally into effect and brothers and sisters before one of those lawyers ever delivered a letter to any of those 70 people he picked out of the Lisbon phone book whether the letter got there or not after he died my friends that inheritance belonged to them it was theirs legally no shifty lawyer could come and take it because it was legal 
It was binding even before they knew it. Just imagine sitting there in a cab, sitting there cutting up fish, not realizing that you're having multiple thousands of dollars that's yours. It belongs to you. Legally, it was already theirs. But don't you know it did them a lot of good? You know, if they'd have died right then, they would have died with all of that money being theirs. It would have been theirs. But don't you know it did them a lot of good when they received that letter? Now that letter, that letter, my friends, did not give old Kamara, whatever his name was. I'm not going to try to repeat that name. It didn't give him that money. That letter didn't give him the volition to want to give it to these people. That letter didn't pick their names out of the phone book. That letter, my friends, didn't maintain that money so that at his death it could go to them. But boy, that letter was good news, wasn't it? That letter was good news. What is your faith? Your faith, my friends, is telling you what you already possess. Your faith is like this letter. I'll tell you that money was theirs. It was legally theirs. But man, wasn't it wonderful when they knew about it and they got to enjoy it in their everyday lives. Let's look at another example. Go to Paris. I read this out of The Guardian. Two penniless brothers who live in a cave outside Budapest, Hungary. They live in a cave, okay? Now, I've seen some people make houses out of caves. No, no house. They lived in the cave, okay? These two brothers outside Budapest said they are to inherit most of a, of a reported four billion pound, that equals seven billion U.S. dollars. These two brethren, these two brothers who were living in a cave after an astonishing twist in their family fortunes. Zolt and Giza Pilati have no fixed address and eke out an existence by selling junk they find in the street. But their scavenging days are about to be over. The brothers have been informed they are entitled to their long-lost grandmother's fortune, along with a sister who lives in America. Charity workers in Hungary broke the news to them after being contacted by lawyers handling the estate of their maternal grandmother who died recently in Baden-Württemberg, Germany. These brothers later on, I didn't write this down, but those brothers later on said, yes, it's been very hard to find women who will go out with you when you live in a cave. <laughs> I don't think these boys are going to have any trouble like that anymore, do you? I mean, three and a half billion apiece, okay? Even if you divided it between the three siblings, that's a lot of money. They're all billionaires. Now, brothers and sisters, when they were living in the cave, trying to scrap together bike parts, and auto parts salvaged just to sell to junkyards or whatever the case may be. Brothers and sisters, did they not become billionaires until the lawyer's letters got to them? Did they not become billionaires until the charity workers who'd received the word from the lawyers came to them and told them, you're billionaires? You've, in, 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 you've just inherited all this money? Was that when they became billionaires? No, my friends, they became billionaires when she died. Because she had already done all the legal work that was necessary that on her death, it was set in stone. Now, I'm telling you, I'm glad they found out about it. Amen? I'm glad they found out about it that they don't have to date ugly, toothless women anymore because they live in a cave. Okay? I'm glad they don't have to, you know, worry about all these things. I'm glad they do. But let me tell you something. If both of those boys died in a cave in, 
before the letter ever got to them, before the charity workers ever told them, they died billionaires, even if they never got to spend a dime of it. Now, what does all this have to do with faith? Brothers and sisters, you understanding the things of Jesus and trusting in him, him revealing unto you those things that are yours, I'm here to tell you, brothers and sisters, your coming into knowledge of it cannot change the judgment. It cannot change that God chose the people before the foundation of the world and Jesus Christ came and died for them. You having faith didn't obtain it. You exercising the faith God gave you reveals it to you. Does it say that anywhere else? Uh, real quickly, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Notice here the Apostle Paul is going to talk about the joys of preaching the gospel. All right? He said in verse 15, Romans 1, 15, So much is in me is I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. All right, I love to hear the preaching of the gospel. And he was loving to preach it. He was ready to preach it to them. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Anytime you see salvation, it just basically means a deliverance. A deliverance. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. How is it saving you? He's about to tell you. What saving power does the gospel have? And I'm going to tell you all my friends, it does save. Amen. That gospel saves. But how does it save? Does it save you from the wrath of a just hell? Or does it save you with a precious knowledge of what Jesus has already successfully done for you? Let's read Preaching of the gospel, verse 17, for therein, in the preaching of the gospel, is the righteousness of God applied? No. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. What's written here? The faithful shall be made just? No. It said the just shall live by faith. See, the world wants to put that backwards. They want to say, if you're faithful enough, you'll be made just before an almighty God. If you accept Jesus into your heart, if you pray the sinner's prayer, if you just believe hard enough, tithe hard enough, pray hard enough, come down to this mourner's bench and pray through and hang on and hold on and maybe you'll make it. People need to be saved from that. They need to be saved from feeling like they're threatened by hell every day because they haven't done good enough People go to bed wondering, oh, and maybe y'all, y'all ever do this? You go to bed wondering, and I thank God I've been freed from this. I've been saved from this. I'll tell you, gospel saved me from a lot of things. Have you ever gone to bed and said, oh my goodness, I, I wonder if I've done well enough today to make it to heaven. Let me go ahead and answer you, no, you have not. You have not. The answer is always no. You have not done good enough to go to heaven because heaven's not by works. Heaven's by grace. Salvation's by grace. Oh, my friends, but you say, I believe in Jesus. I, I, I wrestle with my sins, and I, I mean, you know what kills me? You want to see how big of a sinner you are? I want you to make up your mind, knowing who Jesus is, knowing that he hears your prayers. I want you to make up your mind and say, I'm going to spend 30 minutes. And Jesus prayed all night long. In fact, Jesus prayed 
at, off and on at least for 40 days in the wilderness. Can't we do 30 minutes? You may say, yeah, I can do 30 minutes. I want you to say, hey, I, I love Jesus. I know Jesus is my Lord. I'm going to pray to him. I'm going to talk to my Savior for 30 minutes. How long do you think it'll be before you think about Britney Spears or Taylor Swift? How long do you think it'll be? You old folks may not know what I'm talking about. How long do you think it'll be before you think about Waylon Jennings or when the next bill is due? How long do you think it'll be before you think about what you saw on TV a little while ago or you say, did I take the garbage out? How long do you think it'll be before some lustful image comes through your brain? Have y'all ever, are y'all picking up what I'm putting down? Have you ever been there? Do you know why you can't pray like you need to pray? Because you're a sinner and you need a Savior. And if you could live good enough, pray good enough, work good enough, beg good enough, accept good enough, recite prayers well enough to get to heaven, then there'd be no need for Jesus Christ. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He tell you, He's always been my Savior, and if He don't save me, there ain't no saving for me. And I trust in Him, and I can go to bed. Not having to worry about whether all the world's going to burn in hell or all many God's children that he wants to be in heaven will go to hell because I didn't do well enough. I, I've been saved from that. You know why? Salvation's of the Lord. But you know what I do want to do? I want to preach Jesus Christ. I want to preach Jesus Christ to whoever will listen to me because if it strikes a chord in their heart and they say, you know what, you've been reading my mail. Who do you think you are talking about me like that from that pulpit? How dare you? I mean, you're talking about me. Yes, I'm a sinner. Yeah, Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. If that gospel message means something to you and pricks you in the heart, I can tell you if Jesus Christ, high and lifted up, is your aim and is your goal and is the sweetest nectar of any flower. If the thought of Jesus being exalted and elevated that you're not worthy of him, but yet he would dare condescend to such a cockroach as you. And I got good news for you. That's called faith. And it's God's way of showing you, you already belong to me. There's the inventory. There's the inventory. It's what you, and I close with, y'all may say, well, I've heard that lie before, but I'm going to close. I'm going to close. I'm going to close. Hebrews chapter 10. Now the theme of this is what do you already have? What does faith reveal that you already own? Okay? You're already in possession. Notice this wording. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 12. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Why did he sit down? Because he's not up in heaven trying to get people saved. No, he's already saved them. Maybe they haven't even been born down here at the maternity ward yet. But if he died for them, heaven will be their home. He sat down because he got done. Okay? One man did one work forever. Okay? From henceforth expecting. That means anticipating till his enemies be made his footstool. The world said, Jesus is up there crying. They just won't accept me. They won't have me. Jesus is up there saying, man, I'm ready to go back. Father, you give me the word and I'm going to fetch my bride. And no other man's going to have her. She's mine. She's bought and paid for. My, my blood, my righteousness is imputed to her. I'm going to get her. He ain't up there begging. He ain't up there fearful. He's up there excited about coming back and getting you to heaven. Ain't our God good? He's excited about you. 
He said, for by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. You know, a witness is telling you something that's already taken place, right? A witness to us. For after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts. The commandment came, sin revived, and I died. Same thing being taught here. He said, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. He said, this is a done deal in the sanctified work of Jesus Christ, not in you. Somebody may say, well, it doesn't mean anything unless you come. No, you ain't in there except being a blessed recipient of the grace of the Lord. The only reason you want it is because you've got it and now you need to live in it. Amen. I'll tell you, if you're a child of the king, stop dwelling in the gutter. Live in the palace, my friends. Confessing the Lord. Walking and basking in his glory. I ain't mad at y'all. I just get happy. I just, I just get happy. I ain't mad at y'all. Notice this. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now, he said, understanding this. Now, where remission or the putting away of these is, there's no more offering for sin. Jesus doesn't need to come back down and do anything else. He doesn't need to offer anything from heaven. He's done everything that's necessary for the saving of all of his people from the beginning of time to the end of time. Now, remission of these is, there's no more offering for sin. So what does he say? Now we have remission of these things. I want you to notice the things you have. Remission. There's no more offering for sin. Verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest, into the very presence of God the Father... How can you dare have boldness, confidence that you're going to enter into the holiest? He said, by the blood of Jesus. I'm not here to offer you any blood of Jesus. I don't have any in my pocket. I don't have any in my veins. My friends, that blood was shed one time 2,000 years ago. So he said, you've got remission. The only reason you have the boldness is because the blood has been shed for you. He ain't still shedding it. He did it one time, and he did it right, because God can't do anything wrong. Okay? Verse 20, by a new and living way. The Old Testament was full of dead ways, dead turtle doves, dead heifers, dead bullocks. Jesus is the new and living way. That means he died for us, but guess what? He ain't stayed dead he was resurrected. He's the new and living way. So you've got a remission. You've got the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, the very body of Jesus, is included in this. The perfect sinless flesh of Jesus. And then verse 21 says, and having a high priest over the house of God. You know a high priest ain't no good at all if he fails to make the intercession that he ought to make. Je don't you say Jesus failed. Jesus is a high, high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And when he went in before his father, he made all the intercession that was necessary. He did it perfectly because God can't do anything. What? Imperfectly. God can't. Then he says in verse 20, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Now wait, before you get to verse 22 where he says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. What did he say you already had? Their sins and iniquities I'll remember no more. Now where remission of these is, no more offering for sin. Having, therefore, what does that mean? They already have that. 
Having, therefore, brethren, boldness to enter by the what? The blood of Jesus. So you have the remission. You have the blood of Jesus by a new living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil. That is to say his flesh. You've got the consecration, the redemption. You've got the body. You've got the blood. And having an high priest over the house of God. You've got all of those things plus a perfect, unfailing high priest to make intercession for you. And notice After he says you have all those things, then what does he tell you? Let us therefore draw nigh with a true heart and full assurance of faith. You know what I don't understand? I've had this discussion with brethren. They try to tell me that faith is God's entity that he's given you. That faith, they are the hands that reach up to God and receive eternal redemption in Jesus Christ. I've got a problem with that. Now I'll say this. If you have faith, if anybody has faith, it's God, God gave it to them. Okay? Maybe if somebody says, well, that just sounds like semantics. They're going to be saved one way or the other, Brother Joe. But you see, I've got a problem with this. Where does faith have its import? Where does faith have its application? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Are we going to have faith in heaven? No. Because when you're brought to heaven, everything you had to have faith to believe in will be a reality for you. You will have the substance. And you will have the substance that the evidence pointed to. Faith, my friends, is like hope. You don't need hope if you're seeing that what you're hoping for, according to Romans chapter 8. Faith is not something we're going to carry with us into heaven. You don't need faith in heaven. And I find it hard to believe that God would use something that strictly has a, as pertaining to the flesh, remember our text, application, to carry his people to heaven. When that entity that's so important as to secure eternal life for them itself isn't even going to be into heaven. Did that make any sense? I hope it did to y'all because it makes sense to me. What I want you to understand, brothers and sisters, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and I adjure you, repent and believe in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Repent and believe in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Somebody may be understanding my voice and say, I don't believe it. I wouldn't have it on a stick. Well, that's between you and the Lord. But if somebody hears this message and they say, they have that quivering inside and they have that desire to confess Jesus Christ, then I encourage you to stand up Express repentance of your sins. Take up your cross in baptism. Confess your Lord and Savior. There's salvation in it. It's not going to make heaven any more real for you, but it will give you a sweet heaven on earth while you live here. It'll save you day in and day out. When you're pouring out the angst and you're pouring out the troubles and you're pouring out the depression and you're pouring out the despair and God's just filling it and filling it and filling it with filling it with what? What he's already placed within you that only gets bigger. You think it's accidental? Jesus said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Brothers and sisters, just trusting in Jesus by a little faith. I'm here to tell you, he can fill up all the voids in your life with that faith. It's just like a buffalo steak. The more you chew it, the bigger it gets. But thanks be unto God, it tastes better than filet mignon. I thank y'all for your good order and attention as I've stood before you. Come here.